I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have together here this evening and to study God's Word together. I hope that the topic that we look at will be edifying to you and that it will strengthen you in your commitment to follow and to serve God. Most of the scriptures that we will read tonight will be out of the New King James, and, but for the ones that are not, I will do my best to specify them as we get to them. Tonight I want to talk about Jesus, and specifically His name being the one name to remember. There are, there are several things that led me to this topic. One of them was a few weeks ago I got to spend some time with just my grandmother at her house, and I love doing this for many reasons, but for one reason, we get to talk about the past. We get to talk about my granddad, W.A. Marshall, and my Aunt Sabrina, and my great-granddad, Owen Hayes. None of them lived long enough, or I was not born early enough to meet any of them and get to know them. But I get to hear all sorts of stories about them. But I cannot think of any of the stories that I've heard about them that did not revolve around God, Jesus, and the kingdom. Even though I never met them, they've had a profound impact on my life and on the life of my kids because how they lived and what the focus and driving force of their life was. Maddie and I have talked several times about what a blessing and a joy it would be for us to be able to see our kids grow up and get married, to see grandkids and great-grandkids. And it would be a blessing and a joy, and it's something I truly desire. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say, because that is what I want. But if I don't get to see that, does it really matter? Does it really matter if I get to, if the focus of my life is Jesus, and we've instilled that in our children, and they instilled in theirs? I did not get to meet my granddad or great-granddad or aunt, but the focus of their life was Jesus, and that was instilled in me. And the impact that they had on me indirectly through their Christ-centered life has a far greater impact on my soul than getting to know them in this fleshly state. The two other things that led me to this topic were two different songs from the same contemporary Christian group. And the first one um, I'll read, I'll read the first two verses and then the chorus. It says, Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself. Dream your dreams, chase your heart, but above all else, make a name the world remembers. I got lost in the light when it was up to me to make a name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, will crumble into dust when it's all said and done. Because all that really mattered, did I live the truth to the ones I love, was my life the proof that there is only one whose name will last forever. And the chorus says, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I've only got one life to live, so I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. And the chorus of the other song says, so let me go down in history as another blood-bought faithful member of the family. And if they all forget my name, well, that's fine with me. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. What is the focus of our lives? Are we using every second he blesses us with to point to him? Are we living for the world to see nobody but Jesus in our lives and in our relationships? My, my sincere desire for each one of us 
is that we are using the time that God has blessed us with and granted to us to honor and to glorify Him. The first point that I want to look at is Jesus is the name to remember because Jesus alone can save. In Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John went on the mountain with Jesus where he was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appeared there talking with Jesus. And Peter said, I'll make a tabernacle for all three of y'all. And as Peter was saying this, a great cloud overshadowed them. And the voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The disciples at this point still did not have a clear picture of who Jesus was and what he meant to the whole world. I'm certain, though, after this cloud spoke to them, that they had a better understanding at that point. The next couple of verses of this story are what what I want us to get, though. In the previous verses, the disciples did not have a clear picture of Jesus. When they saw Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus, they wanted to build tabernacles for each one of them. And then the voice spoke to them from the cloud, and then Jesus, they, they fell on their face, and then Jesus touched them. And he told them to rise up and to not be fearful. And when they got up, they saw no one but Jesus only. Once they rose up, Moses and Elijah were no longer in their view. It was only Jesus. The point I want to take from this is when we, see sal- when we seek salvation, we don't see Jesus in the saints. We don't see Jesus in the apostles. We don't see Jesus in anyone else. We see Jesus. John chapter 14 and verse 6 says, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And we'll look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It says, Let it be known to you and and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 it says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. These verses show us the singularity. They show us the one mode of salvation. It's through Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door, and all that enter through me will be saved. Jesus did not say he was one of many doors or even one of several doors. He said he was the door. When reading of the scene of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, we see a heart-wrenching scene. We see the Son of God and our Savior spit upon. We see him mocked and ridiculed. We see him cursed and slapped. We see a crown of thorns placed on his head and driven into it. And then we see him scourged. If you look into scourging, you will find that they would tie them to a post or to a pillar with both their hands. They would place it around their wrist and hold them tied up so it would hold them exposed. Scourging was a prelude to crucifixion under Roman law. Tying them to the post during the scourging 
might have been done for several reasons. It might have been done to keep them from trying to run away, or it might have been done to give them a better picture of their back to inflict as much pain as possible. They tied Jesus to this whipping post, and by his stripes, by his beating, he purchased our healing and our ability to be reconciled to God. But I'm convinced that they didn't need to tie him there. I think that he would have clung to it just for you and for me. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus shed his blood, and through him we obtain mercy, forgiveness, and the ability to be reconciled to God. We serve a Savior that is perfect and selfless, that has given us a free gift of salvation, mercy, and grace. If we will submit to him, Praise God, Jesus is our Savior. Secondly, Jesus is the name to remember because Jesus secures us. I'd like to look at John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. It says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given me them, given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And also in 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll look at verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter, 1, uh, cha- 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus secures us. We have an inheritance in heaven that is kept by the power of God through faith in the resurrection of Christ. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. It says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For which God prepared before hand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith. This passage is abundantly clear about this, but I'd like to define grace and faith. Grace is defined as Strong's number 5463, and it's the word carisi, and it means graciousness of manner or act, acceptable, benefit, favor, or gift. Favor and gift are parts of the word grace or the word carisi. If we are saved by grace, we have been shown favor and we have been given a gift. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Jesus is the focal point. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through who? Through Jesus. 
Also, through Jesus, we have access by faith to grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This sounds like we have been shown favor and been given a gift, or in other words, we have been shown grace. Faith is defined in Strong's, it's number 4102, and it's the word pistis, and it means persuasion, credence, moral conviction of religious truth, especially reliance upon Christ for salvation. By extension, the system of religious gospel truth itself, assurance. In this word faith or pistis, faith is defined as reliance on Christ for salvation through the gospel. Mark 16, 16 says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The word believes here is very closely related to the word faith that we just defined. Believes here is Strong's number 4100. And it's the word, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's, it's pistioio, and it means to have faith in, upon, or with respect to a person or thing. Credit. By implication, to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being, to Christ. Grace is always there whether we choose to access it or not. Grace is favor that God has shown to us through His Son, Jesus, and through His death on the cross and His victory over, the, over death. Christ died for us while we were sinners. That's grace. If we want to access this grace, we have to have faith. This faith will move us to obedience, submission, and good works in Christ. Christ secures us. We are saved by grace through faith. The blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and submission to it and our immersion into it are sufficient for salvation. But good works are an important part of the Christian life. Not in order to save us, the blood of Jesus did that, but it is the result of and the evidence of our salvation. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 where it said that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I'd like to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read verses 14 through 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The love of Christ compels us, once we are saved, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ who died for us. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Before we were saved, we lived according to the flesh. But once we were saved, we became a new creature with a new purpose. And that purpose is to live for Christ, and through our life and the works in it, should point others to Him. 
We'll read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. James 2, verses 14 through 18 says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what doth it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith that is not accompanied by good works is a dead faith. It is plainly and simply stated here. Our faith should compel us to love and to good works in the kingdom and to evangelizing a lost world. The third point that I would like to look at is that Jesus is the name to remember because Jesus never fails us. As much as we love everyone in this room, we fail each other. Whether we realize it or not, we do. But Jesus never fails. He is perfect. His support is perfect. His forgiveness is perfect. And His love is perfect. We can always count on Him and turn to Him. If our focus is on Jesus we will fail each other less. Not that we will be perfect in these areas, but rather that we would continually strive to be more like Christ in our support, forgiveness, and in our love for one another. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 in the King James says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. You don't become the author of eternal salvation unless you're perfect. Jesus never fails us because he is perfect. Psalms 55 and 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. The Lord is willing to support us by telling us to cast our burdens on him. And he doesn't say in some Eeyore sort of voice, You can cast your burdens on me if you want to. In fact, it reads and sounds like it's more of a command rather than a statement stating that we can do it if we want to. Secondly, not only does he want to support us, but he's willing to sustain us through it. He says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. If we follow the command and the privilege that we have to cast our burdens on the Lord, he'll not only bear our burdens, but he'll sustain us through them. Jesus never fails us because his support is perfect. Hebrews 8 verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And in Psalms 103 verses 10 through 12, it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And also in Hebrews 10, we'll read verses 12 through 17. Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 17. It says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. 
For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. By the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. He is merciful to our unrighteousness. He has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. But he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He offered a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And that sacrifice is sufficient for all sins from all men as long as this earth lasts. And through this perfect sacrifice we are told that our sins will be remembered no more. Jesus never fails us because his forgiveness is perfect. John chapter 15 verses 13 and 14 says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No one has greater love than Jesus because his love bound him to a cross for his friends. And these verses tell us who his friends are. Those that are friends of Jesus obey his commands. I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians 13, and I want to read this out of the ESV. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll read verses 4 through 8. It says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. In John 15, we establish that the greatest love that can be offered is one that dies for his friends. The only one to do this is Jesus. So from this logic, we can conclude that Jesus is love. Here in 1 Corinthians 13, we see how perfect love acts. And I'd like us to think about these verses in light or in view of the cross. Love is patient and kind. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I believe it's safe for me to say that most of us, if not all of us, would be envious of those standing at the foot of the cross, wishing we were standing there instead of hanging. Jesus wasn't. He wasn't envious. Jesus never sinned. Instead, he patiently endured the cross, knowing the salvation that it would bring. Love is not rude. Jesus didn't ridicule or threaten those that were yelling, crucify him. But again, he said, Father, forgive them. Love does not insist on its own way. Jesus prayed to the Father and said, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, and his flesh knew that this would be an excruciating, painful, distressing, and agonizing experience. But he did not insist on his own way, but rather the will of the Father. Love is not irritable or resentful. Once again, I'll echo, Jesus said, let it not be laid to their account. Jesus said, forgive, not hold on to. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, so love died that wrong, wrongdoing could be atoned for. Love rejoices with truth. Love held Jesus on the cross, knowing what the cross would mean for the world. Love bears all things. 
the sins of the world were bore on the cross. Love believes all things. Love believed that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. Love endures all things. Love patiently endured the trial, the cross, and the grave for three days. Love never ends. Jesus never fails us because he is love and his love is perfect. What are some practical applications for us in regards to the way for us in regards to the way that Jesus never fails us? First, Jesus never fails us because he's perfect as we established. And knowing this, knowing that we'll never attain perfection in the sense of being sinless, how do we become more perfect? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We do this by living our life in a manner that is a continual sacrifice to God that would be pleasing and acceptable before him. And we do this by not being like the world, by renewing our minds daily in the truth of his word and by applying it to our lives. Secondly, Jesus never fails us because his support is perfect. How do we become more supportive? Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a pretty self-explanatory way to be supportive of our brothers and sisters. We need to bear one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. We can become more supportive by comforting and edifying one another in deed and truth, just as God has done for us through His Son and through the Scriptures. Next, Jesus never fails us because his forgiveness is complete. So how do we become more forgiving? By loving and extending grace. By realizing that without the forgiveness of Christ that we are all undone and lost. And knowing this should compel us to be more forgiving. In Matthew chapter 18, the question was asked, How many times should I forgive my brother that sins against me? Seven times? And the answer was more like 490 times. And while we know that this was not literal, the point was, forgive as often as sin occurs. Be willing and glad to forgive, knowing that we have a Father that's willing and glad to forgive. And believe me, I've needed to be forgiven a significant amount more times than 490. I'm thankful for the forgiveness that Christ has given to us. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. If you hold a record of wrongs against anyone, you haven't forgiven them. If you haven't forgiven them, then you have, un you have stored up unforgiveness in your heart that turns in to bitterness and hatred. We are told that hatred creates conflict, and we can see this over and over in our world. If you have love and compassion in your compassion in your heart, then you have the capacity to forgive. Last, lastly, Jesus never fails us because his love is perfect. So how do we become more loving? 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, 
from a pure heart. If we are to become obedient to truth and striving for brotherly love, then we must love one another. And we need to love each other sincerely and not in a superficial and fake way. We need to have a genuine love for all the saints. The last point that I want to look at tonight is Jesus is the name to remember because Jesus will make us known to the Father. Colossians chapter 1 verses 20 through 23 says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of the flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which, has, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Peace was made by the blood of Jesus on his cross, and he reconciled us in his body in the body of his flesh through death on a cross, so that he might present us holy and faultless and unaccused to the Father. And in Jude, uh, Jude verses 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jesus can present us to God faultless and with exceeding joy. I cannot think of or imagine more comforting and humbling words than these. As we bring this lesson to a close, I want to ask you the question that we talked about at the beginning. If you don't get to be with your kids or grandkids through adulthood, what will they remember most about you? Will they remember most how much you like to work? And whether that's um, the way it really was or perceived, is that what they will remember about you? Will they remember most about you how you like to play? Or will they remember most about you how much you love Jesus and how you sought to instill that love in them? Will the impact of your life and the focus of your life give them a strong foundation to live a faithful life for Christ if you're not around? I hope so. Most of us, or I'm sorry, most of you know me, and some of you know me well. You know that I am flawed and that I have sin that I war against. But hear me when I say this, I am extremely thankful for my granddad and great-granddad who I never met that loved Jesus and that Jesus was the focus of their life. Because of their dedication to him, I have been blessed with parents that have instilled that same dedication in me. You don't have to look very far in one direction or the other to see a descendant of Owen Hayes. And I'm not saying this to build him up above other Christians, and I'm certainly not insinuating that he was perfect. But I say this to help you realize the impact that the faith of one man and one woman can have for generations to come. My hope in this story is to remind you that you have the ability to have the same impact on the generations that proceed after you. Remember the song we read at the beginning of the lesson? Did I live the truth to the ones I love? Was my life the proof that there is only one whose name will last forever? And I don't want to leave a legacy, and I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I'll let 
and I've only got one life to live, and so I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. Remember the impact that your life can have for generations to come. Will generations after you have a sincere desire to follow Christ because of the love that you instilled in them for him? In Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, we see that Joshua lived a faithful life. Joshua lived out his faith, and by example of his faith in God, all of Israel lived for God as long as he was alive. But not only that, after Joshua had passed away, all the elders that outlived him, Israel continued to live for God. What an impact, what a legacy of faith. But sadly, we don't have to look very far to see that baton being chopped. In fact, we can just look at the very next verse in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. We see another generation that came after them that did not know God or the works that, they had done, that he had done for them. They did evil in the sight of, of God, and they abandoned the God of their fathers. This is a sad and devastating thought to think that in one generation the church could cease to exist here in Plainview or in any other town if we neglect to make Jesus the focus of our life. There is no one like Jesus. If you haven't given your life to him in, in submission to him in baptism, please do so. The congregation pleads with you. There is nothing else worth living for other than Jesus. Worthy is his name. He deserves our praise. If there is one that needs the prayers of the church, we would ask that you would come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.